0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua, chapter 6. Hear now the word of our God. We'll start at chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. No. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests, and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up the gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is the word of the Lord. We've come to the central section of the book of Joshua, taking possession of the land where God, God had promised the land to Abraham's seed. And now he is bringing to pass what he had promised. He had told Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that their heirs, their descendants would take possession of the land of Canaan. And so not surprisingly, the the leading verb the, that's used in this central section of the book of Joshua is the verb to take possession because well, that's what Israel's doing throughout this whole section. And as we saw last time, the the army was circumcised when they had, when they had crossed over the Jordan, they came to Gilgal, and they had been circumcised because they they hadn't been circumcised in the wilderness. And they celebrated the Passover because they hadn't celebrated the Passover in the wilderness either. After all, you could only partake of Passover if you're circumcised, so presumably if they hadn't been circumcised, they haven't been doing the Passover. But now the army has been nourished by word and sacrament. And, and that's, it's, it's important to see what Joshua's doing here because, because taking possession of the land begins with worship. We shouldn't be surprised by that. What had Abraham done all during his sojourn? He didn't own any land except that one burial plot. But he built altars. He built altars and he worshipped God in the land. That was the one thing that he could do when he didn't have possession of the land. He could still, you know, on an empty lot, lot, he he could build an altar and offer sacrifices to the Lord. That's the one thing he could do in the land. And so that's the one thing where Israel starts, is they start with Father Abraham worshiping in the land. And that becomes the foundation for everything else. And uh, we saw a bit of this at the end of, of last week where we, we, we touched on verses 13 to 15 of chapter 5 where, where Joshua sees this man standing with a drawn sword. And we, you see you know, Joshua's courage He doesn't run off and call for help. But here's this man with a drawn sword and Joshua goes up to him. It doesn't say that Joshua drew his sword and attacked. It says he he asked him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the reply is important. No. So you're not for us and you're not for our adversaries. Right. Let's get this straight. I, this person tells him, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. You may have thought, Joshua, that you were the commander of the army of the Lord. No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua, you you don't quite understand yet. Whose side are you on? God doesn't take sides. The question is, is Joshua on God's side? You, Joshua, are my servant. Yes, you will cause Israel to inherit the land, but only if you humble yourself and listen to my voice. And so Joshua falls on his face to the earth and worships and says to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? I am the servant of the Lord. This, this is where spiritual warfare begins, on your face before God. And that's where sometimes we just need to remember that. When we get really busy, when we, get, we're so, we can be so focused on doing this for God, doing that for God. If Joshua had been so busy doing stuff for God that he was like, oh, there's that guy over there with a the sword, forget him, i got to go get the army ready. He would have missed out on the commander of the army of the Lord. In fact, uh, Jericho might not have fallen if Joshua had been so busy doing the Lord's work that he f- didn't fall flat on his face before the Lord. Because how does Joshua know what to do at Jericho? It's only because the commander of the Lord's army tells him what to do. This opening section of chapter 6 takes place as the Lord speaks to Joshua. Who's the Lord who speaks to Joshua? It's the commander of the Lord's army. This is still the commander of the Lord's army speaking to Joshua, telling him what to do. Only when we are prostrate before the commander of the Lord's army will we be able to hear his marching orders and do what he calls us to do. We hear in verse 1 that, that, that Israel had besieged the city of Jericho. Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now, Jericho is one of the oldest fortified cities in the ancient Near East. It, it, the walls of Jericho had stood for over a thousand years at the time when Joshua came to the city. Think about that. I mean, the city of Rome was sort of like, oh, we lasted for a thousand years. The city of Jericho had lasted for more than a thousand years. It's also the lowest city on the planet, being 750 feet below sea level. It's not far from the Dead Sea. Jericho was one of the, the greatest ancient cities of, of the region. They took pride in their impregnable walls, It appears they didn't even bother calling for help from other cities. They see this small Israelite army. And in those days, nobody had siege weapons. What does Jericho have to fear? Their walls have stood for a thousand years. What can this little army do to them? So they laugh. But the Lord said to Joshua, notice how the commander of the army of the Lord is now called the Lord himself. The Lord says to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. God says it's, it's, it's over. <laughs> it's already over. I have given Jericho into your hand. And here's, here's how. March around the city. It's a strange plan. I mean, siege weapons—you might, know, might do something. You know, they didn't. You know Battering rams about the only thing anybody had in those days. But not, okay. what are you going to do? No, march, march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. Do that for six days. Then on the seventh day, do it seven times. Then blow the trumpets, give a big shout. Wall comes down. God has told Joshua. Here's how to win the battle. Now, in in future battles, Israel will be expected to actually fight and do something strategic. But here at first, they need to learn that the battle belongs to the Lord. God is the one who saves his people. God is the one who gives his people the land. Now, if you think about it, this is actually closely related to where we are today. Our Joshua, the Lord Jesus, has already won the battle of Jericho. He's already conquered the great enemy, the great ancient city. He has conquered. And now we continue to fight our spiritual war day by day, but we always fight with the battle of Jericho at heart. Of course, the battle of Jericho is a a small matter compared to the cross of Christ, but the picture is the same. Only God can save. Only he can defeat his and our enemies and bring us into, into the land. And there's a way in which Jericho will continue to be that in the life of the people of God. But faith believes God and then does what God says. And you see this in Joshua. Joshua believes God and so he does what God says. And really the central section of chapter 6 is all about How Joshua does what God told him to do. Notice how the Ark of the Lord is at the center of the story. We've already seen that worship is where everything begins as Israel comes into the land. And the Ark of the Covenant is at the center of the battle of Jericho. You won't hear much about the Ark of the Covenant in other battles in Joshua because this isn't magical thinking. Later on in the book of Samuel, you'll hear stories about how Israel started thinking, oh, if we lost, oh, it must be we didn't have the ark. We should bring, we should bring the ark into battle and, and then we'll get the victory, right? No, no, that, that's not the lesson of Jericho. The lesson of Jericho is not that if you have the ark of the Lord with you, then you'll win. The message of Jericho, this is where it's, that, it's that's, that's, that's what it's called magical thinking. Just, oh, if we just have the ark, then we'll win. At Jericho, what you have is sacramental thinking. What we need is the presence of God himself. Just like, just like the glory of the Lord led Israel through the Red Sea. Think back to the Jordan River. At the Jordan River, as soon as the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant touched the water, the waters parted. Was that because the Ark of the Covenant was magic? No. No. Because of the sacrament. The the same glory. Because sacraments have to do with outward signs of inward realities. What was the inward reality of the Ark of the Covenant? Well, remember how the glory of the Lord led Israel through the Red Sea? The glory of the Lord appeared, the glory cloud at Mount Sinai? And how the glory cloud then filled the tabernacle? Well, you don't hear about the glory cloud in the book of Joshua. Why is that? Because the glory of the Lord now dwells in their midst in the Ark of the Covenant. God is teaching them sacramental thinking, not magical thinking. Sacramental thinking is the presence of the Lord. God, that God is with us, not as a magic talisman, but because the same glory that led us through the Red Sea is the same glory that led us through the Jordan River is the same glory that now leads us to Jericho. And The glory of the Lord has come to dwell in our midst. Sacramental thinking is always driven by faith. By faith we see the connection between the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. And so we believe God and do what he says and walk forward. Magical thinking has no need for faith. Magical thinking says, hey, we got that powerful thing, let's use it. Of course, Israel will fall into magical thinking in the book of Samuel. They'll, they'll say, Ah! Oh, you know what we need against the Philistines? We need the Ark of the Covenant. Come on, get the Ark of the Covenant. We'll go to battle against the Philistines and that'll, that'll do it, right? And the Philistines get scared. They're like, Oh no, a God is coming to the camp. Alright, we'll fight like men, Philistines. we gotta, we got to fight against the God now. And the Philistines won. And they captured the Ark of the Covenant. They killed the priests of the Lord. God is teaching his people not to be swayed by magical thinking. Do you see the connection between the Ark of the Covenant and my presence with you? Then believe me, trust me, and do what I say. March around the city once in silence. Joshua tells them, don't say a word. Don't open your mouth. So you got to march all the way around the city in utter silence, just the trumpets blowing, and when it says they're blowing continually, the ram's horns. Uh, ram's horns, this is, they're not playing tunes. You don't play tunes on trumpets in those days. The ram's, the ram's horns have very limited notes, but they, you can, they're blowing certain blasts that basically, you know, they're sort of like, that's about what a ram's horn does. Uh, So the ram's horn is going off all day, and you're walking around the city in silence. Undoubtedly thinking to yourself, How is this going to work? What is how does this knock down walls? Okay, well, but do you believe God? Do you trust him? Magical thinking would say, Hey, we got the ark! That means God's with us. Let's charge the gates. Sacramental thinking says, no, God has told us what to do. He is present with us. So let us trust him, believe his promises, and do what he says. And so by faith, the people march silently around the city. And then verse 12, they do it again. And they do it for six days. Now, it's it's worth thinking, okay, people inside the city of Jericho, what's going on? They're marching around the... Okay, why are they all so quiet? What's going on? Kind of bizarre. They've been doing this every day. And then the seventh day. Now, the the text doesn't say which day of the week this all starts on, but it's worth noting they don't take a day off for the Sabbath. And most likely... I mean, It does say the seventh day, which it could very well, may very well have been the Sabbath. The day of battle may have been the Sabbath day. It's worth remembering this because it's important to always remember that the Bible never teaches a Pharisaic view of the Sabbath. The Pharisees would have said that marching around Jericho is a violation of the Sabbath. And of course, they do this for seven days. So whether it was day one was the Sabbath or day three was the Sabbath or day seven, whichever day of the week it was, at some point, the Pharisees would have been like, oh, you're breaking the Sabbath so you shouldn't be marching around the city. But remember, Jesus regularly refutes the Pharisaic view of the Sabbath. That doesn't mean that Jesus abolishes the Sabbath. What it means is that the Pharisees got the Sabbath wrong. So the Sabbath, the Pharisaic view of the Sabbath was never the right view. It wasn't that, oh, in the Old Testament they had a Pharisaic view. No, the Pharisees were always wrong. That was never God's view of the Sabbath. Jesus agrees entirely with Moses' view of the Sabbath, or you might say Joshua's view of the Sabbath, because marching around Jericho is a perfectly good thing to do on the Sabbath. You are with God's people doing God's work in the presence of God himself through the Ark of the Covenant, What would, how could you possibly imagine a better Sabbath activity than marching around the city or even marching into spiritual warfare as you go in on the seventh day? Our, our text is suggesting that Joshua spent the seventh day, the Sabbath day, conquering Jericho. Now, just, just think about what did Joshua's great namesake spend his last Sabbath doing? He dies on a Friday night. So the Saturday, the Sabbath, what was he doing? He was doing battle against the gates of hell. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that bit about the Ark of the Covenant being captured in the book of Samuel? What happened when the Ark was captured? The Ark was taken into the temple of Dagon, one of the gods of the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of Yahweh with his people, descended into hell into a pagan temple where he did battle against the gods of the Philistines. And in the morning, the temple of Dagon was found fallen flat on its face in front of Yahweh, in front of the Ark of the Covenant with his head and his hands severed. God had gone before his people into the realm of the Philistines and conquered because this was... This was what the battle of Jericho had taught Israel in the first place and what they had forgotten when they were like oh magical thinking let's use the ark no 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 remember god always goes before his people to destroy their enemies the lord works salvation for his people he goes alone into the gates of hell you you don't need the ark to sort of as your support piece god is the one who goes before you he is the one who triumphs. And in our text for tonight, the Lord goes before his people at Jericho. And as they march around the city now seven times, and the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. After six days of marching in silence, after the seventh day of going around the city seven times in silence, now the time has come to shout. And Joshua says, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now this, this language of to be devoted to destruction is a, is a term used in the Old Testament to refer to the entire destruction of something. God had commanded the complete and entire destruction of the Canaanites. And this, this oftentimes is like, oh, God is commanding genocide? Well, his command is to bring the final judgment on Canaan. This is this is this is eschatological judgment. This is last day's judgment. This is this is when you hear in, when Paul says in Romans, you know, "The wages of sin is death." Well, this is what this is what God had done at Sodom and Gomorrah by burning bringing fire on the city, and now God does this to Jericho and the Canaanites by saying. Basically, time's up. In the same way with Sodom and Gomorrah, God had said, basically, I'm, I'm, or think about the flood, where God does this as, here's here is here's an example of what sin deserves, complete and utter destruction. And so that, because if you think about what happens at the end of history, what happens at the final judgment, when God says, those who have rebelled, those who have refused to believe, those who have... Rejected Christ will get final and utter destruction. That's, so what, what God does is, in the middle of history, brings a picture of this to say, here's what sin deserves. Now, it's, it's important to remember that the Canaanites had known Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived in this land. And when you consider how long they lived, they had lived there for a couple hundred years. The Canaanites knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and you go back and read Genesis, some of them had blessed Abraham and his seed. And those Canaanites will surely be found in the new creation. They believed. So what else can we say but that they are, they belong to, they, they belong to Jesus. But now, most of the Canaanites had refused to believe in the God of Abraham. Although, there were some, Rahab, a perfect example right here in Jericho. She had repented and believed. And for that matter, I mean, when, it, when you look at who, who is rescued, her whole household. So what, who was part of her household? Well, anybody who was found in her house. I mean, there, it's entirely possible that there were people in her household who had only joined in the last few days. <laughs> We're like. Uh, I hear that you're uh, you 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 believe in this Israelite God. Can can we be part of your household? Here you're going to get you're going to be spared. We'd like to be spared too. Anybody who who becomes part of Rahab's household will be spared. So I mean, how, whoever believed would be saved. And as our Lord Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead, so also now the Lord Joshua comes to judge the living. As a foretaste of that final judgment. Now, at Jericho, there's also this extra step. Joshua says that all that is within it, not just the people, but also the animals, shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So, what's going on there? It's partly the principle of the first fruits. In the first battle, don't take any plunder for yourself. This is not about you, this is about God. Don't even pretend to be pious and say, oh, we will take the best of the animals and offer them as sacrifices to the Lord our God. Because what do you do when you offer sacrifices to the Lord your God? You get to eat the meat. So you're pretending to be pious, but you're actually looking for a good roast beef dinner. Sorry, no. In the first battle, you don't take any plunder. You devote it all to destruction, because you're basically you're saying this, the Lord is giving us the land, and so Jericho, as the first fruits of Canaan, will be offered entirely to the Lord. Everything in it. The only since since you can't uh, you know, fire doesn't do much to gold or, or or iron or things. You take you take the metal and you and you put it in the treasury of the Lord. You give and then but then everything else is burned in fire. You say you're worshiping God? Okay. Then worship Him alone. And if you trust Him, and if you really believe Him, then you know His his promise is to give you the land. So you will get the land. But do you put Him first? It's a good principle for us to reflect on. Do we put Him first? Is he first in everything that we do, trusting that he will... This is what Jesus says when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So in Jericho, Israel is called to destroy all living things except Rahab. Only Rahab and the the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And in verse 18, Joshua warns the Israelites, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. I mean, there might be just a little bit of foreshadowing here. Is it possible that somebody might not have taken this admonition seriously? Um, Joshua warns Israel, if they take the devoted things, they will bring judgment upon the camp of Israel. Don't be like the nations. Remember that your God is holy And therefore, all the holy things, all the things that God claims for himself, need to go into the treasury of the Lord. If you take something that God has claimed for himself, then you will bring trouble upon yourself and your people. So the people shouted. The trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, they shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city the, the, the archaeology of Jericho shows that this, the city collapsed at, in, this, in this ballpark of time and was overthrown and uninhabited then for several hundred years. And every living thing, we're told, was devoted to destruction. Men, women, young, old, oxen, sheep, donkeys. Final judgment fell upon Jericho. But... Rahab was saved together with her household, all who, who belonged to her. Anyone who wanted to be saved could be saved if they simply identified themselves with Rahab and her house. Notice though in the first 23, they put her and her relatives outside the camp of Israel. Why are they outside the camp? Well, they're not circumcised. They're unclean. They're, so it's, they will need to be... And actually, in Deuteronomy, there's a, there's a procedure given for those who are who are the, you know, sort of uncircumcised outside. How can they become part of the community? Well, they start outside the camp, and if they want to join themselves to Israel, they go through the ritual process of becoming clean, getting circumcised. So uh, that's presumably what happened, especially as what we hear uh, a few verses later. But meanwhile, the rest of the Israelites... Burn the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Final judgment has fallen upon Jericho. Now, as, as we go through the conquest, we'll find that very few cities were utterly destroyed. I mean, after all, God had promised them cities they didn't build and vineyards they hadn't planted, and if you destroy everything, then you can't use it. So, it's not surprising that... The archaeological record doesn't show much evidence of massive destruction at this time. According to, the, if things happen, if, if, according to the book of Joshua, there wasn't massive destruction. There would have been a whole lot of people killed, but the cities would have remained largely intact. Really, only Jericho and Hai were burned with fire. The rest of the cities were captured and inhabited. So if the Bible tells the story truly, then we should expect the archaeological record to show very little evidence of structural change, but perhaps some evidence of cultural change. And some archaeologists have noted a remarkable decrease in the number of pig bones in 13th century settlements. Well, if Canaanites treated pigs as clean animals and would eat pigs, then you'd expect to find pigs in Canaanite homes. But Israelites view them as unclean and don't have any... So, and so, not surprisingly, the new settlements of the 13th century don't have much of that. We also find some mutilated statues of Canaanite deities in certain cities. Which, if Israelites are coming through and uh, killing the Canaanites and destroying their, their statues, we'd find mutilated statues. So, but verse 25 returns to Rahab. Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. We we discover later that she marries a man from Judah and her son was named Boaz. Uh, In the book of Ruth, we hear that Boaz had had a special place in his heart for outsiders who believe in the God of Abraham. Surprise, surprise, I mean, his mother was Rahab. So when Ruth, the Moabitess, comes to Bethlehem, Boaz seems seems to see something in her that reminds him of his mother. Uh, Do you happen to remember where the Moabites came from? Moab was the son of Lot by incest with one of his daughters in the wake of the ruin of Sodom and Gomorrah. How ironic and yet how fitting that the son of Jericho, the destroyed city, marries the daughter of Sodom, the first city that God had destroyed with fire. And that through these two would come David and our Lord Jesus because even as the fire of the lord fell upon sodom so now the fire of the lord falls upon jericho that same fire that will I mean, jesus says i come to bring fire upon the earth but he must first endure a baptism of fire his cross his tomb His descent into hell is where he will take upon himself the curse of Jericho, the curse of Sodom, the curse that was upon all humanity. And so Joshua lays an oath on them at that time, verse 26, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. He doesn't say Jericho will never be rebuilt. Rather, he says that the one who rebuilds Jericho will pay a terrible price. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest sons shall he set up its gates. We're told in First Kings chapter sixteen that Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho at the cost of his eldest and his youngest sons. Many have speculated on how that happened. Some thought, oh, was it child sacrifice? Was it some divine providential accident? The text doesn't tell us. We don't need to know. What God has told us was that He, out of Bethel did this. 1 Kings 16, what's the context? It's in the days of King Ahab who did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him Next line. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. In other words, in the days of the worst king of Israel ever, Ahab, the king who introduced Baal worship, built a temple for Baal in Samaria. And if that's not bad enough, he encourages Heel of Bethel to incur the curse of God by rebuilding Jericho. Now, can't help it. God keeps doing this when He brings curses, because the curse on Ahab for God says He's going to wipe out his whole line. There was one in Ahab's line who survives, because well, Athaliah, Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, winds up or yeah, granddaughter, daughter winds up marrying into the line of David. And God had promised David that his line would sit on the throne forever. So what what happens when God's curse on Ahab intermarries with God's blessing on David? Mercy triumphs over judgment. That, that, That little boy Joash who survives the purge of the house of David happens to be of the seed of Ahab and Jezebel as well as of David. Because, yeah, I mean, it's, Pretty much every curse you find in the Old Testament in some way or other finds itself back around to Jesus. Because that's what God's doing in the whole story of redemption. He's bringing all the curses upon humanity onto His own Son because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us that He might bear our curses, that He might betake upon Himself the wrath that we deserved. And so we see in verse 27 the result for Joshua. The Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. <laughs> what did Joshua actually do at the battle of Jericho? He just did what God told him to do. The great, the great general. How was he great? Because he did what God told him to do. He believed God. And so he did what God said. I know some, sometimes it seems hard. Sometimes it seems almost impossible to do what God says. Because sometimes it really seems like God's ways are foolish. Marching around the city in silence, that's a terrible strategy. It leaves your army unprepared against a sudden counterstrike. Sometimes the foolishness of preaching seems like a terrible strategy. We need new techniques, new strategies. Jesus Christ is building his church. His fame continues to go forth in all the land. This is where what Jesus is doing, Jesus continues to do what he's promised. And sure, sometimes it sure feels like it's just not working. I'm sure sometime around day six, there were plenty of people who were sort of like, why are we still doing this? What's when are we ever going to get around to getting, attacking the city? Sometimes you may feel like you're in day six. When is what God? When was God going to show up and do something? But remember, God is faithful to His promises, and what He has begun, He will continue, and He will continue. He, he will continue to do the work that He has begun in you and bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we just. We just need to trust him and do what he says because if we do what he says he will do what he says. He is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God have mercy on us because we so easily forget these things. We so easily forget that, that you are faithful to your promises and we get focused on the things that aren't working and the things that are falling apart and Lord, have mercy. Have mercy and help us to remember what you've promised and remember what you've called us to do. Help us to humble ourselves before you and to do the things that you have said. And Lord, sometimes we're afraid that if, if we do what you say, it won't work well for us. But we remember that that you have promised and you are faithful. And so whether it goes well or, or ill for us, help us to remember that you, that you do not count time in, in the, the days and weeks and years of our life, but you are working all things together for good for those who love you, for those who are called according to your purpose, and that this is where things are going, that you have promised and you will do it. So help us help us to hear you and help us to love you and help us to, to encourage one another as long as it is called today to, to, to not fall away and not... Turn aside from the path that your son our Savior has has shown us and has called us to help us to heed your voice to trust your promises Lord have mercy on those who are who are weak and those who are ill and those who are who are troubled and stumbling have mercy Lord upon those who who are doubting and fearful have mercy on those who are anxious and afraid Lord have mercy on on all those who who are trying and Failing and flailing and Lord, have mercy on those who are giving up and help them to hold fast. Lord, call back to yourself those who have strayed and renew to faith and repentance those who have abandoned you. Because, Lord, you are faithful. And we pray that you would that you would continue the work that you have begun in us and bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might know your mighty power and your great faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.